You're listening to the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, the show for people who leverage the latest in technology to solve agronomic problems. If you're interested in on-farm application of precision ag technology, you've come to the right place. Get ready as we unpack the insights and experiences of the agronomic minds leading our industry forward. Today on the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, because if people just say this area didn't provide profit, they start abandoning it, and it's not always the right thing to do. That area might have needed more care, right? It might have needed more fertilizer, or you just don't want to jump to conclusions with the profit map. Corey Wilness, president of Crop Pro Consulting and Croptimistic Technologies, joins the show. If you're new to this podcast, and there's a good chance you are since this is our very first episode, welcome. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm a communications consultant, overall ag tech geek, and the host of this show. I've partnered with the Swap Maps team on this project to share stories of where the latest in agronomy is intersecting with the latest in technology. Each episode that you'll hear is going to feature a different guest or guests, some of which are Swap Maps employees and partners, others that aren't. But I thought a good place to begin this podcast series is with Corey Wilness. To make sure that I didn't just ask him the stale old typical podcast questions, I solicited most of these questions from social media. So what you're about to hear is going to include questions such as the best approaches to creating zones, the difference between swap maps and just intensive grid sampling, barriers to variable rate technology adoption, the concept of profitability maps, and several others. We really run the gamut in this short episode, but I thought a good place to start was just understanding a little bit more about Corey's background before we dive in. Yeah, well, I guess I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan. Got my degree from the U of S in agronomy. I worked for an ag retail that did everything you could say, liquid dry and hydrous products and custom spraying. And so for eight years, I spent working with farmers. You know, I really enjoyed that and really enjoyed sort of the scouting and consulting side. So in 2003, I started my own consulting company called CropPro, and that company's now grown to close to 30 staff now. It's basically in Saskatchewan doing crop scouting and and primarily variable rate services with swap maps. About three years ago now, I guess, we became operational with an ag tech company called Croptimistic Technology, which owns all the software, the hardware, uh, the patents and the rest of the IP to basically take swap maps and the whole zoning process that we designed and go international with it. And that company now has about 15 staff and we're expanding mostly across North America and right now, but a few other countries as well. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that I'm really excited for this show too is that you know, when you came to me with the idea, you said, look, I don't want this just to be a, a sales pitch. I want it to be actually, you know, really useful information, you know, stories from other people around there. And so I think today's episode is actually a great place to start where we're not starting with what are the key messages we want to get out there. We're starting with what are the questions? And you and I had asked on social media this week what questions people have about 
you know, precision agriculture and the type of work that you do. And I'm amazed at the response. <laughs> we have questions from all over the world here. And so I, I'm just going to go through these with you if you don't mind. And then we'll just let these prompts take us in the direction of where the conversation can lead. But I'll start here with uh, one of your, your fellow Canadians, Kelsey Banks from Ontario. She asks, uh, zone creation, what are the best methods or approaches to creating zones? Because it seems like everyone does it a little differently. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a definitely a very fragmented market. Um, so my own personal taste is that if you're working with soil applied products, for example, you know, soil applied fertilizers, you're doing different seed rates, your soil sampling for nutrient contents and stuff that I like soil type maps. I like maps that relate to the soil, water and topography variability out there. I like to see zones that are what I call high and dry, they're all grouped together, areas that have thin topsoils and they're watershedding and low organic matter, maybe coarser textures. To me, those are all a zone for for everything that you would apply in the soil. So, yeah, and I think the question says everyone seems to do it differently and maybe there are other people doing other forms of trying to build soil type maps, but there's just no consistency. So I think our swap maps process that we've, really focused on bringing a nice, consistent, reliable result. Uh, doesn't matter where you go, it would make sense to anyone. Outside of that, maybe just if it's in-crop related products, I think imagery tools are the best. So whether that's capture the drones or satellites, some type of remote sensing device. If you want to do variable rate on off fungicides or work with desiccants for dry down or maybe even some top dressing work like you want a good picture of the crop growth at that time, where it's high biomass, where it's low biomass. You know, it's also common for people to make zones from yield maps, but it's not really a starting point. It's like the end point of the year. So we treat them as like yield potentials of area of the field. You know, look at your yield maps and say, well, how did these hills, these drier hills yield last year? Were they the lowest yielding parts of the field or... Maybe you're in a wet area and they're in the highest yielding parts of the field. It's it's just a bit of a report card at the end of the year. So personally, I, I like to separate all three. I don't like methods that put them all together. And people say, I created a zone map from these three different layers. To me, that's just, it just doesn't work. So yeah, that would be my answer. Could, yeah. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Why, why doesn't that work where you put them all together? Well, because it varies by year, like um, like in a wet year from where I'm from here in northern Saskatchewan, your depressions might be drowned out and your best yields might come from your top of your hills and your, and your mid-slopes. But in a dry year, it could completely flip and you could have the dry areas like the tops of the hills or the poorest yielding and last year what flooded out might be your best yielding. So yield potential isn't a a static thing like a soil type map is a static thing it doesn't change it it is what it is all the time every year from year to year whereas imagery and yield those are things that are that they vary a lot depending on the conditions and the crop types and the pests and insects and diseases so i just don't see how you can incorporate things that are inherently unstable with things that are stable right well, and I think you partially answered this next question, which is from Lance Meyer in Kansas, but he's asking, what are the pros and cons to swap maps versus intensive grid soil sampling? 
Yeah, I think grids are in what I call maybe like tight grids. So one acre, so high resolution grids. If you've got perfectly flat, tile drained, one soil type, types of fields and high value crops, then it's fine to go to intensive grid sampling and really spend a lot of time doing that because you don't really have much underlying soil variability, right? But outside of that example, I believe people should switch to SWAT related grid sampling. So either SWAT related grids or SWAT zones. Like I think you need to know within a one acre grid point, like if it's not perfectly flat land, you might have a little hill, you might have a little depression, things like that, right? So SWAT grids are basically using an existing SWAT map and maybe instead of taking all your soil tests and putting them into five different zones, you'd go out there and individually sample each one. You could do one acre grids, but they're defined that they're exactly a certain soil type zone. And are there other areas of variability that you need to watch out for? Like, let's say you have a flat field. Uh, what other variability do you need to check for to see if, if this is really the way you need to go? Well, it depends on what your definition of flat is, because like everyone has this definition that my land is flat. But, you know, some of the flattest areas that we've worked in are like in the Regina Plains. And yeah, there's not much elevation change in the field, but when it rains 10 inches and the water all collects in the field, there's 30 acres of dead crop in one area of the field and the rest of the area of the field is fine, right? So water still has a massive influence. It's still got to run somewhere. So there's, it's almost impossible to find those like perfectly flat fields where the water all just sits in one spot. And the other thing with flat land is too, that it's, there's been a lot of wind erosion on some of that stuff. Like I use the Rechina Plains as an example, the Red River Valley soils through Manitoba and into North Dakota, like they're heavy clay soils. People have really worked them a lot with tillage. There's been a lot of erosion in those fields. And there's lots of topsoil that's been blown around. You can find areas that have had accumulated topsoil and, you know, areas that have lost it. You can see, you know, higher groundwater tables in certain spots, bringing up carbonates and stuff like that. So I've never worked in truly flat ground. I've never seen such a thing. So that's kind of a hard question to answer. (laughs) Right. Well, and I, I think other than what you just talked about, which is people think that their ground is is flat, but in actuality, you could see the water moving in a way that indicates it's not. Other than, you know, that mentality, what are the other barriers? And this question actually comes from Luke Struckman uh, from Red versus Saskatchewan. What are the other primary barriers to, to adoption of a variable rate technology in general? Well, my first answer to that question is always the same, that I think the number one barrier is people having the equipment. So farmers having planters, drills, carts, and tanks with the technology that they've bought new or adapting existing equipment, that's the primary barrier. Either people have the equipment and they don't, and maybe only 25% or less of people have this equipment. So, you know, only 25 out of every 100 people can only even think about it. So secondary barriers would be more like, it adds, yes, a little element of complexity for the operator, but I believe that goes away really quickly. Um, It's not as hard as people think. And then the secondary stuff that that would come up most often is sort of like your cost value proposition. You know, that's kind of a confusing market right now. Like we had that question initially, right? Like there's 100 different people doing 100 different things and 
there's nothing very real obvious to people out there. So that would be probably another barrier is just the confusion in the marketplace. Okay. Well, we might have one of our questions from one of those people who's wondering about getting that equipment. So if they don't have the equipment, uh, Kate Withers from Toronto is asking, what are the best widgets or aftermarket for data collection on sprayers and combines? Um, well, if there's existing, say, yield mapping or, you know, every sprayer, I guess, would have the ability to, to monitor what's going on with it already on board. Uh, so if they have those existing components needed, they can just go into the CAN bus with things like Climate Field View and Farm Mobile. would be some common platforms that people would bolt on to existing equipment. But if there's nothing at all, if you had a combine that didn't have any yield mapping and, you know, moisture equipment on it, things like egg leader or farm tracks are, are pretty common. Um, we have a crop scan sensor on our research combine we share with Borgo for mapping protein. Yeah, that'd be probably some common aftermarket products. Hey, can you talk about that? The, the research combine that you're, you're mapping protein, can you talk more about that? That's interesting. Yeah, um, like in certain crops, I guess, for sure, like protein matters. Um, wheat, of course, is a big crop in the northern Great Plains. And part of, you know, having good wheat quality is that you want a protein above about 13.5%, for example. Um, so part of it's related to, you know, farmers don't want a bunch of piebald wheat that's low protein in certain parts of their field. So we're you know, we're trying to come up with those relationships because quite often is related with water and and your nitrogen management. Yeah, so it's mostly related to wheat, barley, and crops that we're we're measuring for protein. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, we actually didn't get a question on it this week, but I've heard it come up in in recent months a few times. This concept of a profitability map. I mean, are you all offering something along those lines, a profitability map, or if so, where's this coming from? Have you heard much about this? Yeah, they've been around for a long time. You know, it's been around for a decade. I guess we're probably just getting into it now. And the most of the reason why I say that is because if you don't really have enough information, building a profitability map could come up with the wrong answers, right? Like if you don't know if you're putting in the right rates, how can you go out and do a profitability map and tell people that, you know, what worked and what didn't. Like you could drive a decision the wrong way. So I would say that what we've been trying to do is, you know, come up with our SWAT maps and the nutrient rates, do some infield testing to validate like that the fertilizer rates are correct, monitor the water, do a lot of observations throughout the year to come up with, you know, sort of the reasons why an area might be high or low yielding. And then at the end of the year, using our yield and protein maps, building in some of this logic to, to come up with an actual answer. So you could easily push the button and say, here's the profit map. But without the underlying knowledge to say, yeah, this area didn't provide you much profit, but what could you have done different? Because if people just say this area didn't provide profit, they start abandoning it. And it's not always the right thing to do. That area might have needed more care, right? Might have needed more fertilizer, or you just don't want to jump to conclusions with the profit map. Absolutely. Another question we had, this one was from LinkedIn. This is from uh, Amir Nakar in Germany, is how much water slash pesticide slash fertilizer can we actually save with precision eggs? I mean, what differences are you seeing among, you know, 
uh, the people that your agronomists work with, that they're actually, you know, seeing in savings uh, with precision ag technology? Yeah, this is a very broad and sort of, you know, difficult question because it's very related to the specific region that you're in. So there's a different answer for this if you're in Ontario. And, you know, we just had a webinar with Jeff Miller from Texas and what he's working on with the irrigation and the crops that he's working on versus Western Canada. So I can't really answer to other areas because, you know, they have different ways of doing things and different crops. And, you know, it depends on what the starting point is. So quite often we end up working with the best managers Right? They're, they're people that already have like everything under control. And then going to swap maps variable rate is just sort of like the next incremental step above and getting to that top of the pyramid in their management. So when you're dealing with those kinds of people and it's like a incremental improvement, I would say maybe 10%. Like that's probably what we're trying to either improve the profitability or reduce the costs to come up with a some net income to the operation. So that doesn't sound like much, but you know, 10% on a couple hundred bucks an acre inputs or $400 an acre crop yield can be people's profit in a year. Now there's lots of room for improvement for people that are what I'd call, you know, basically archaic. They don't use technology. Maybe their management is enough to snuff in general. And sometimes I mean, we work with a lot of people where, you know, you're helping them take those initial management steps as well as implementing technology. And those people could see massive improvements, I think. You know, you could double their improvements because they're sort of working with professionals, learning more, helping them take their entire farm management and their site-specific management to a new level. It can work great as long as they're willing and able to go there. Yeah, great. Well, hopefully, you know, some of the work we're doing on this podcast can help with that just a tiny bit uh, to hear other people's experiences and how they're using technology in their agronomic practices. But uh, anything else that you wanted to to mention here while I've got you for maybe five more minutes, you know, that comes as a result of these questions I've been peppering you with. Yeah, I'm really excited for this podcast because, um, you know, I'll just use the example. We had Jeff Miller from Texas on a webinar here a few days ago. And he showed all the partners what he was doing with swap maps in West Texas with irrigation and variable rate seed and, you know, how he's built it into his whole system for recommendations and variable rate irrigation and stuff like that. And like, there's a lot of these superstars out there. There's a lot of great people doing things in their local markets that, you know, if you're not some big company in the news that the media is covering, you just kind of kind of get lost out there. And so, like, I learned a ton from him. I know all our staff and partners were really thankful he did that for us. And I think that that's the opportunity here. You know, like, I don't think that we can just pick somebody who's championed it, like me, for example. Yeah, I've championed it in my local area, but I'm not going to be any good in Texas. None of my knowledge and experiences of any value at all down there. We build great maps and that's about where it stops for us. So that's what I'm excited about is from hearing from researchers and agronomists and technical people from well, hopefully all over the world and getting questions that we can 
learn from them. If you too want to hear from all those experts from around the world, make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. You'll find us, the SWAT Agronomy Podcast, on all of them, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Also, tune in for part two with Corey. We received so many interesting questions that we're going to turn this interview into a two-parter to get to as many of them as we can. If you have a question that you want answered on a future episode, send it to us via Twitter using the hashtag SWAT Agronomy. Thanks for listening.